You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, it's Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing great. How was the wilderness, Chad? The wilderness was, uh, it was fine, man. It was, it's, you know, it's always good to get out there and commune with nature. You look like a different man. You look like you've been through some stuff. Yeah, I've seen some shit. I've stared down the abyss. Wait, you weren't out there hunting the most dangerous game, man, were you? <laughs> ah, the most dangerous quarry, sir. <laughs> no, we went. You know, you, now that I think about it, you were being really hazy on all the details about where you're going and what you're going to do. What you just I- kept saying that uh, you were going to come back forever changed and that I shouldn't tell anyone about it. And I was like, hey, man, before we leave, I just got to stop and pick up this homeless guy real quick. Get him cleaned up. Give him $100. If anyone asks, I was at the movies with you all weekend. Yeah, my daughter fell off the deck and uh, split her chin open pretty much first thing. Nice. Drive for four hours, show up at this cabin, daughter falls, splits her chin open. It's like immediately you think, well, we're going home. Here we go. We're out. We're out of here. How did you manage to see the fights if you were in the wilderness all weekend? I caught up on them via tape delay after I got home. <laughs> via the magic of tape delay? Via the magic of tape delay, yes. That's correct. Did it feel like it lost anything for you? Uh, no, because you know what? Actually, it worked out in my favor because I was in the wilderness. We stayed in this cabin with uh, with that didn't have electricity or running water, which is another story in its own right. But uh, I didn't have cell phone service, obviously, so I didn't have the Twitters or the uh, the social medias. And uh, managed to avoid any spoilers until I got home. Really? No spoilers at all? Saw no spoilers whatsoever and was pleased as punch that it worked out for me that way because obviously I didn't know that I was going to watch Tyler Jeffrey Dillashaw just smack the shit out of uh, Henan Barrow. The Viper. Was TJ awesome. Dillashaw. That's right. So you were, even though it was like, what, like probably, you know, Monday afternoon by the time you saw it, you were still jumping off of your couch going, holy shit, huh? Yes. And I made like, uh, we're going to answer a question about this in, in, a, in a moment, but like, uh, I made that the sound like when during the Jamie Varner fight, like right at the end, when he finally collapses at the end of the first round, I was like, oh, even though I was all by myself, I was still in, <laughs> enjoying it to that to that level. So I was things worked out. uh well for me, I have to say. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, let's see. What do we got here? Well, we, we got some news and notes. Ben, the uh, uh, second annual White Elephant Essay Contest is in the books. The submissions are now closed. Woo! So uh, you and I are going to have to begin the uh, lengthy and tedious process of going through those essays now. Oh. Uh, so I guess that's a good news, bad news situation <laughs> yes, for it is. us. Um, I guess we need to establish a timetable for that. What do you think? A couple of weeks we can uh, get that done and announce winners maybe week after next on the show? Sure. We can commit to that. And worst comes to worst, we just won't read some of them. Yeah, we'll just skip over. Yeah. Like, we'll start with the earliest ones, and then <laughs> people that, like, ducked in right under the deadline will probably... We'll read them all. Stop complaining. Yeah. We're going to read them all, but we are going to... Uh, Use a black Sharpie and draw a line on your essay and write, this is where I stopped reading and send it back to you. Yeah, and we reserve the right to read passages of your essay aloud to each other in a stupid approximation of whatever we think your voice sounds like. Yeah. Oh, this is you. This is how you sound. I can't wait till Sir Nigel gets back so he can help us out with that. Uh, a note on international shipping for the Co-Main Event Podcast, coffee mugs. 
Uh, we discussed on Twitter, but I wanted to make sure I had to say it on the podcast just to clear up some confusion. Uh, according to our mugs guy, you can order, you can order Co-Main Event Podcast mugs in Canada and Europe. Uh, just, you have to send an email to orders at pyramidamerica.com and they'll, they'll get that straightened out for you. Yeah. Like if you live in like Luxembourg or something and you write to them, they might send you an email back that starts, look, you're not going to like this. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's going to cost a lot of the rainbow colored Mickey Mouse money that you guys use over there. But it's not real money anyway. No, man. It's, it's, it's like Monopoly money. Yeah. So, you know, pay whatever they ask and buy a mug and then enjoy your, uh, your thick Turkish coffee, whatever they drink in Europe. <laughs> what a tea? Drink some tea out of it? Sure. They do that. Uh, ben, this week's music comes to us from listener slash rapper Andre Griffith. Oh, nice. Yeah. And his, his rap name, well, I guess I just said his real name. Is that like a faux pas to out that's a, a rapper total, by that's his a total real name? Faux pas. So like uh, if we had The Undertaker on and I called him Mark Calloway. Oh, man. Would that be? He would slap the taste out your mouth. <laughs> I, hope, I hope that Andre doesn't get mad. Uh, his rap name is The Mind of Dre. You can find... Uh, more of his stuff at soundcloud.com slash the mind of Dre. Uh, it's in, good. In fairness to you, it's not exactly a name that. No, he's not going by like Ghostface Killer. Yeah. Right? So. Yeah. It he, makes it kind of tough on he, you there. He must be pretty cool with it. Uh, three rounds as usual this week for the co main event podcast. In round number one, TJ Dillashaw is the best pound for pound fighter in the world. And anybody who implies differently is just saying stupid shit to try to get hits on their website. And in round number two, at least now we know what size Daniel Cormier's hat is. His hat size is Dan Henderson. Get it? Because yeah. he wore Dan yeah. Henderson I really, around. I wish you would have ran that behind me before. Like a, like a hat? I wish this wasn't the first time I was hearing wore this. Wore him around like a hat during Move their on. fight. Move on. Three-round fight. Yeah. Like a button. We got it. Uh, round number three. This weekend, two UFCs in one night. So the UFC is officially moved away from not caring if we watch the shows to actively making it impossible for us to watch the shows. <laughs> So oh, cool. Good to know that. Uh, Sir Nigel Longstock's still on assignment, yeah? Yeah. He's not here, so I guess yeah. he's... Yeah. I assume it's not going well if we haven't heard from him this long. Well, you just, before we started recording, you noted that he contacted you to say that he bought a suit and had it shipped to your house from uh, the East Coast, where he's currently uh, cavorting. Yeah, he is currently cavorting in the East Coast. And you know how it is when you leave Montana, you got to take advantage of the big city opportunities to buy suits and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know... He had that whole business with breaking up with his girlfriend, so now uh, he returns back home to try and find a place to live soon. You know what? I'm glad. And maybe this business with him buying a suit, maybe he's turned over a new leaf. You, you know, the big mistake he made was in having that suit shipped to my house so that it arrives before he does. You know I'm going to put that suit on and go to the strip club immediately. <laughs> immediately. That's what I'm doing. I don't think you guys wear the same size of suit. I'll make it fit. Oh, okay. Cut the sleeves off. First things first. Yeah, I was going to uh, do that anyway. So we're going to do what a not master tweet theater this week. We'll do that whenever Sir Nigel gets back. So this week, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Stefan from Stoke, England. Nice. So one of those overseas listeners we were just talking about. He writes, do you think the UFC were hinting? See, there you go. Right there. England, English stuff, <laughs> first first line. Now he's going to write favorite with a U in there or something. Do you think the UFC were hinting to call it a day with Dan Henderson when Joe Rogan came to have a chat with him? As already, See, look at this guy's English as fuck. <laughs> Talking about having a chat. <laughs> when Joe Rogan came to have a chat with him after the DC bat. Oh, he calls it the DC battering. 
Man, this I can't believe your reaction to this email. It makes me happy. <laughs> I love it. Uh do you think Dan Henderson will go on? Would have the result been different if TRT had been allowed to discuss? Uh yeah, Pip, it did. Cheerio. I feel like that's implied. <laughs> that's right. Uh doff of the cap, sir. Uh you know, I did think it was a little bit uh maybe not not weird per se, but it did kind of seem like like Joe Rogan during the post fight interview phase of the Dan Daniel Cormier Dan Henderson fight, like that Joe Rogan was kind of nudging Dan Henderson toward that yeah. in that direction with his questions. You know, and it's not like he only does it. Like he we've seen him do that before in similar situations where if it seems like that's what he thinks the guy's going to do with a loss, or if it seems like the guy is saying stuff that's going to lead you in that direction. But in fairness to Joe, it seems like we all kind of do this to Dan Henderson, especially right. when he loses. We all in the interviews ask him about how long are you going to do it? How, you know, how much longer do you think you can keep getting in? there and dan henderson never gives an inch in that one every time he talks and this was no different he talks like he's going to be doing this shit until you have to physically bar him from the arena he's going to be 60 years old and still thinking that he's got a couple more in him yeah you mentioned that i think last week on the podcast that he does sort of talk about himself like he's a 25 year old spring chicken he seems to have no idea that he's 43 years old like he's a guy who's going to take his shirt off and get a trampoline off the off the roof. Well, he will do that. Push a barbecue across the street. <laughs> yes. Did you ever see that picture yes. of him on Sure yes. Dog? Previous to him getting the trampoline off the roof, that was my favorite picture of Dan Henderson. Uh, back in the old cage potato days, whenever I wrote anything about Dan Henderson, I would see if I could find that picture of him pushing the barbecue yeah, across the street. Any excuse to use it. To use. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, he's like that dude who like is, you know, the guy who's still out there like trying to pick up on like 23 year old girls because in his mind, he's still 25. Uh, and physically and to the outward world, we can all see that he's 48 well i mean yeah as a uh you're just making an analogy there he's like that guy yes the guy who's too old to be at the club yes uh we assume dan henderson is is uh faithful to mrs henderson or well i mean we all got a, a look at mrs henderson i mean if he, he seems like he's doing pretty well there Oh, yeah. No no question about yeah. that. Uh, you know, th it seems unfair the last part of this to ask if the result would have been different if TRT had been allowed. I don't really think that we can. Like, who knows? Like, what doesn't seem. Yeah. I, I'm inclined to say no. Yeah. Although the, he did weigh in for the fight at 199, which seems light even for a guy who should probably be fighting at uh, middleweight. Uh, but definitely for a guy who's going out there to try to, to try to fight at light heavyweight. Uh, and I, I haven't looked up any of uh, Dan Henderson's previous weigh-ins, but he usually weighs in right around the limit. He's right like 203, 205, something like that. Uh, so he did weigh in a little bit lighter than normal this time, although I think it'd be a stretch to try to blame that on the previous. Well, and I mean, the last few fights we've seen of his where he is on TRT, he still looked kind of bad. So it's not as if he went from being, you know, a, superhuman he-man to overnight as soon as he has to get off the trt looking bad i mean yeah. he's this is kind of a like a, a downward trending line that he's on and, and it started back when he was still on trt yeah and dan henderson never he was never a guy that looked jacked up like a the veins looking like earthworms under his skin or anything like that vitor belfort shows up for his next fight looking like referee eve levine then you know <laughs> we might have some people might say some stuff which is to say in possession of a quiet dignity yes exactly okay uh, vitor belfort uh it's probably something no one's ever said about him before uh the the uh 
The next question comes to us from listener Tim Bennett. He writes, if you're Dominic Cruz, once your leg heals up, are you kicking yourself that you had to drop out of the Barrow fight earlier this year after watching Dillashaw beat the piss out of him with your style of fighting? Can you really give Barrow an immediate rematch after a blowout win like that? One thing to have a close decision, in parentheses, Frankie Edgar versus everyone, and uh, quote-unquote, do it again, brother, but can you really give a rematch after a thorough, dominating win with a finish? Uh, some, do you think that's subtle humor at the beginning of this, where he says that kicking you're, himself. you'll be kicking yourself once your your leg heals up? Yeah, well, let's hope. Let's Bravo, hope. Tim Bennett. Yeah, not bad. A, a subtlety of humor we don't often see in the listener mail we, selection. You know, uh, I did think about this when the fight was going on, and you see T.J. Dillashaw's fighting style in there, and you think, that's really Dominic Cruz-esque. But seemingly with a little bit more power, I, yeah. I thought. Yeah, well, a little bit more power, and one of the things that Dominic Cruz uses that style to do is that he really w- cleverly disguises when he's throwing that right hand and when he's going for that kind of knee-tap takedown, where he also kind of sets it up the exact same way. And so it keeps people where they're never quite sure what he's doing. And uh, Dillashaw never really used the threat of his wrestling that much, or the threat of the takedown. Uh, whereas Dominic Cruz is really good at mixing those two in. But like, as you said, he did seem to have a lot more power on it. Uh, but it's one of those things where I'm sure Dominic Cruz watching that was like, hmm, that makes me think that I probably would kick Hannon Burrell's ass. Uh, but it's not like he really had a choice. It's not like he he pulled out of the fight to go take a movie role or something. You know, he, he pulled out of it because he just physically couldn't do it. So I don't know if he even has a chance to feel too much regret about that. You know, with beyond the, the regret he already feels. The biggest tragedy of Dominic Cruz, perhaps now never getting to fight Hennon Barrow, is that uh, we're not going to see a resurgence of that photo shoot they did together. Did you ever see the photo shoot when they were supposed to fight, uh, where they both have the belt and they're standing back to back, looking over their shoulders at each other? What? No. Yeah, it's like uh, they look like they could be true to True Detective season two, Hennon Barrow and Dominic Cruz. I'd actually be really into that. They're just kind of. I'll see if I can dig it up for you because it's really something. I was, I was really looking forward to seeing a lot of those pictures floating around headed toward their unifi- their title unification bout. Also see if you can uh, convince HBO to have those guys in season two. Tru- I'm sure it'd be easy. I'm sure it'd be easy. Uh, if Hannon Burrow gets an immediate rematch with TJ Dillashaw, we might as well just admit that you just get an immediate rematch if you're the champion and you lose because he got just – he got his ass handed to him. Yeah, man. no, like, there's this no is, reason. There's to nothing do it. fluky about this. There's nothing. Uh, it wasn't close. It wasn't a disputed decision. Uh, it wasn't even a situation where you put your hands down to clown the guy and he knocks you out. So we feel like we we have to give give the guy a a, a chance to re, uh, like prove that he can do it twice in a row. This one was just an ass kicking, straight up from start to finish. Uh, I feel like they should let TJ Dillashaw go. And I mean, not to talk too much about stuff that we might talk about in round number one, but like, I feel like that, that TJ Dillashaw has earned it, man, that he's going to, that he should just go on and, and fight somebody else. Well, the way I see it, like if you're going to do, if you're going to ask the question, should we do an instant rematch? There's only two reasons to do it. If you dominated the division for years, like your Anderson Silver or something, and then, you know, you get beat. You, maybe you could say, okay, he earned that. Like, even if he does, just go out there and get his ass kicked. If you dominated it for years and years, all right, you've earned a, an immediate rematch against whoever dethrones you. Or if there's something weird, like something weird happens, controversy or something where we're not quite sure that that's the, you know, the right outcome. We want to see it again. Um, those are the two situations. Even like even with Johnny Hendricks and Robbie Lawler, it was an awesome fight, close decision. You could you could kind of argue it. Even that one, we're not going to do, you know, an immediate rematch, it seems, because, okay, good fight, but then the division moves on. I, I mean, 
Hen and Rao had only had three title defenses. Some of those were as the interim champ. There's just nothing there to suggest that we need to see that one again immediately. Right, and I, they've already got a a, a ready-made first challenger, right, in uh, in a Sun Sao because yeah. uh, he's the only. He, well, I don't know if he's the only guy, but he's the. He previously beat T.J. Dillashaw, right? John by, Dotson beat him too by yeah. split decision. And yes, then, a uh, very questionable split decision in Brazil. And then T.J. or uh, T.J. Dillashaw ends up filling in for him and wins the title. So, uh, seems like that's pretty much the direction you got to go. Uh, yeah, and let let him make, go back and make his case for uh, uh, another crack at the title. Maybe have him fight a returning Dominic Cruz. Who knows? Who knows? Indeed. You can, and then you can still use that that poster. You just have to Photoshop right. the belts out of it, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just just blur out the belts. No problem. I'm sure it'll be easy. Uh, next question comes from Matt Thomas. He writes, is there a better example of a fighter living up to his potential late in his career than Robbie Lawler? I certainly can't think of an example. He looks better than ever in every part of his game. Technique, ground and pound, movement, and defensive grappling. Aren't fighters supposed to get worse with age generally, not better? Your thoughts on any other fighter who suddenly blossomed late in the game other than a TRT-infused Vitor Belfort? Uh, got a solid point about Robbie Lawler, who, uh, you know, feels ancient because he's been around for so long, but I think he's only like 32, he's right? 32. So, and like just turned 32. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's got a lot of miles on him. You would think, uh, just because of how long he's been a professional mixed martial arts fighter, but he's also still, uh, arguably in his athletic prime. You know, yeah. he's probably got a couple of, couple few years left before he starts to, to slow down or his skills start to deteriorate. And really, I think as Matt Thomas points out here, he's a guy who really appears to have, have progressed and evolved to the point where now, uh, uh, he's one of the best fighters in his weight class and, 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 you know, more power to him for God's sakes. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and as far as the question of, can you think of anybody else? And the, the mention of a TRT infused Vitor Belfort, I guess you could also say a TRT infused Dan Henderson, uh, who, you know, he's kind of on the downslope of it now, but he had a, a late career resurgence as well. Uh, but as far as Robert Glenn Lawler, there's a guy, you know, not on anything as far as we know, and is looking awesome. And it really seems like he's now fulfilling that same promise that he had early in the day, which was, you know, this great slugger who could really knock you out, threaten you with that power. But now he seems to have just rounded out his game so well you could see it when guys like jake ellenberger try and go in there where like dana white said afterwards that jake ellenberger didn't pull the trigger you know you got to go out there in that third round and, and find a way to win and he didn't do it well, well he tried, didn't, he, he? yeah he did he tried he didn't do it because the guy he was trying to do it against was robbie fucking lawler you can see it in people's faces when they they get in there and they trade shots with robbie lawler a little bit even when they think that that's the best chance they have is all right i got to turn this into a brawl and hope for a haymaker they do that for a, uh, an exchange or two, and you see it on their faces where they decide, all right, I don't want to do that anymore. That just hurts. That guy hits way too hard, and he's just constantly on you. I mean, he, he, he just now, instead of trying to go out there and just blast people right away, he has a, a much more patient approach where he knows he's just – every time he hits you, he's just chipping away at you, and eventually he's going to knock you out. Yeah, and you know, Rob, we should mention Robbie Lawler spent a lot of time messing around at middleweight too. Yeah, uh, previous in, in his previously in his career, and and uh, really only went full time welterweight in the UFC after coming back uh, from being over in Strikeforce, and ever since then, it seems like he's been uh, uh, money, so to speak. Although, and so it maybe it was the uh, you know maybe the weight dropping a weight class had had a lot to do with it too. Uh, Jake Allenberger is a dude who previous in his career. Uh, I felt kind of high on like early in his UFC, uh, days. He, he, you know, had a real close fight with Carlos Condit, um, early in his career. And I thought that he was a guy that had a lot of potential, uh, just because of his re wrestling background and the, uh, 
the power that he has in his hands. But as you said, you, you see him fight Robbie Lawler in this fight, and this is his second straight loss in a row. Uh, and it just, it just feels like he's not that elite guy that I felt like he had the chance to be early on in his UFC career. Cause it really just kind of looked like he got outclassed here by Robbie Lawler. And then, uh, uh, I felt bad for him at the end where it seemed like he came out in that third round and did want to come out and, and fire off some power shots. And it seemed like just immediately broke his hand or, uh, hurt his hand it it appeared um during you know what was really his best punching exchange of the fight so far uh and then kind of uh looked like he didn't didn't want didn't want to do a tremendous amount more after he hurt that hand well and i could see when you know you got rob alar thumping away on you that you might be convinced that this is a lost cause but i mean yeah with jake ellenberg it's one of those things where uh he does seem to be really good at a lot of different stuff and not super great at any one thing. And when you run up against guys like that who are at the top of the division, like Lawler, I don't think it's necessarily like a psychological or spiritual failing the way Dana White tried to make it sound. I think it's just that, you know, he, he's just not, he can't quite break into that, that next top level. All right. Last question this week comes to us from Rasmus Avisto. Fake name. <laughs> no, that's, I think that's actually this guy's real name. Uh, is it, isn't it possible that Dana White's rant about Ben's column was a marketing stunt to help solve the same problem Mr. Folks was writing about? Dun, dun, dun. I knew uh, we were going to get to this eventually. Uh, okay, here's the thing. When you try to say that it's a marketing stunt... Well, wait, we don't have to set this up at all? You think everybody listening to the podcast knows about okay, your internet run-in with the UFC president all right, this fine. week I guess how we should... red your face is in retrospect and well, yeah, how yeah. ashamed you are yeah, about really... the terrible uh, yellow journalism that you yeah. produced? The... Just just trying to talk shit to get hits because nothing nothing gets hits on your MMA website quite like columns about Henan Burrell. Uh vis-a-vis his marketability yeah that'll that just lights the traffic up that's right, right there. yeah you might as well write that's like writing his Barack Lesnar coming back to MMA it's the same kind of trolling it's the same kind yeah of or just putting trolling. like you know Ronda Rousey sex tape in the headlines somewhere <laughs> no. so yeah you wrote this which I thought was a good and uh nuanced story about Hennon Barrow's marketability and how the UFC uh kind of tries to prop him up as the uh best pound for pound fighter in the world to sort of try to sell pay-per-views you put it on Twitter Dana White immediately shot back. Well, I don't have his tweet in front of me, but it was something like, you need to find a, a better job. What he said was that if I don't know how good Barrow is, that I should go cover another sport. Um, to so which I burned I, into your brain. To the which exact I wording of it immediately just seared into your memory. replied, if you had actually read the story, then you'd know what I think of him. Because he obviously didn't read it. Because several times in the story I say, yeah, Hen Brow does seem to be really awesome. Um, and it also seems like people don't really give a shit. Uh, and he clearly did not read the story. Has no, said, admitted it. Yeah, like, admitted, late, admitted, admitted it. Admitted it on later on when told someone else he doesn't read any MMA right. journalism. Which you know, and that's a thing too. He had said before that he has stopped reading the internet uh, and doesn't read any stuff about MMA on the internet. And it's like one of these things where if one of your friends came to you and they're like, you know what, Chad, I decided I'm not I'm not reading the internet anymore. And you'd be like, oh, that's that's interesting. Uh, so so nothing. And then they said, nope, I just look at the headlines on Twitter and form snap judgments. You wouldn't be like. Okay, good development, bro. Good good job. I mean, that's just a stupid way to go through life. So, yeah, if you don't read the stories, you're probably not going to know what you're talking about. Uh, to use a word Dana White loves, you literally will not know what you're talking about because you didn't read the story that you're talking about. Uh, but 
I do think that this conversation, and it's not just me who was having it, you know, other people have, have touched on this topic before, the conversation about why did Henenbrow's popularity not even come close to matching what we perceived as his skill, um, I do think that that might have been the best thing to happen to Henenbrow because that's something that, you know, people can talk about, it's a debate, it also, it has ramifications more beyond just him, it kind of talks about how we view the sport and what sells in the sport as opposed to what we think ought to sell. Uh, so I did think that that is something that was good for Hennenbrow, the fact that we were talking about this in, in this fight. I don't think then going out there and getting knocked out by T.J. Dillashaw helps that at all. Now, you know, if, he'd have, if he had won, it, then, yeah, that conversation might have helped. But as far as marketing stunt, that implies that it was conscious, and it definitely wasn't conscious on my part, and I had no reason to believe Dana White thinks through anything he does on Twitter. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't do it. Uh, so... I'd say it was kind of an accidental thing that happened. Yeah. Uh, and the, the honest truth is like, I would totally understand Dana White's rationale for not reading MMA stories because we've talked about this on the podcast before. Like if you put yourself in his shoes, it must be incredibly frustrating to read that kind of stuff right. because it's, it's, it'd be like anything else where you consider yourself to have a much wider knowledge base, uh, you know, about the specifics of what your company is doing. And then you've got all these jerks on the internet, uh, sitting around trying to throw stones. Like, uh, if it was me, if I was a USC president, I probably wouldn't read, read my own press right. either. Well, you know, same, it, same way. Like I never, I don't know about you, but I never read internet comments on my stories. Right. Like I have a personal policy against doing that and I never do it. But at the same time, I don't be like, you know, Cubs fan 6969 doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about and should go read a different website because I don't know who you are. I don't read your comments. So right. I, I don't, therefore I don't get to talk about it. Yeah. No, I, I'd support, I would, I would like understand his, his rationale and not reading MMA search stories. Although I, like as a caveat to that, I would say that doesn't really seem like what he's doing. It no. seems like he just doesn't read. Like, That's right. If I'm understanding, he's, he's still exposing himself to all the stuff, but without any of the right. context he, and information, he's had a, uh, he's had some interviews in the past that I, that I read. This was years ago now where he did interviews with someone where he said he didn't read books because he didn't have the time. And now apparently he stopped reading he's on planes all the time. Stop reading, stop reading the internet as well. Uh, and, and I think that that's fine. And, and I, like I said, I would understand the impulse if he didn't want to read MMA stories. But, uh, you know, as an addendum to that, if you don't read MMA stories, you forfeit the right to talk about them. Right. Right. Well, because you're coming at them without any context or understanding. And, and so that's that was the strangest part to me of this whole thing was that he would dive into this criticism, like knowing that he hadn't read the story. Right. And, and you know, when it was all said and done, it seemed like he was objecting to the wording of the tweet that you sent yeah. out to try to get people to read your story. That's right. And the wording of the tweet was not even the wording of the headline, you know? And the thing is too, that uh, like, you know, in the interview where he says that he doesn't read the internet uh, and you know, one of the questions then is how do you know what your fans want? Because if you're an MMA, your fans are all over the damn internet. The internet has been essential to MMA's growth and popularity. And his response was, he knows what fans want because I'm the biggest fucking fight fan there is. And I think that, that mentality, it's the same one that you see when, cause his response to stuff like this, if he thinks people are disagreeing with him is you must not be a real fight fan or you must not know what the fuck you're talking about. There's no way you could disagree with me on anything and know what the fuck you're talking about like he just his worldview just doesn't have any room for that uh and i think that that 
that shows through both in that mentality of like, well, I don't need to go on the internet to find out what fans want. I'll just give them what I want. And if they're real fight fans, then that's what they want. And if they don't want that, that necessarily means they are not real fight fans. Like that's, that's to me as a strange worldview, uh, but definitely one that Dana White seems to have espoused time and again. Yeah. It casts for me into different light and also frankly, like kind of explains in a lot of cases, like what, what he's doing when he criticizes the media, which he so often does. Like, remember the, the Vitor Belfort thing where Vitor Belfort uh, had to pull out of or was forced out, depending on who you believe of this, uh, you know, title fight at UFC 173. And then like a couple weeks later in one of the scrums or pr- uh, press conference setting, Dana White was like, well, the media got what it wanted. Yeah. Like, which I thought was really weird and it was a very strange criticism. And now I realize, oh, well, he just never read any of the things that anyone wrote about Vitor Belfort. And was the only thing he had to go on was Twitter, which is snarky and 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 nothing of substance almost ever goes down there. And like the questions that he was asked in press conferences, which is like very revealing to me that I was like, oh, that's why he launched that criticism, because he just to, to use that word again, literally didn't know what had been written about Vitor Belfort at any time. You literally don't know what you're talking. So that was weird. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the co-main event podcast, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link at the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll let you email the podcast. You could also go to comaineventpodcast.com because I just paid 26 bucks to renew that bad boy for another year. Oh, good. Why? You, you know, do that? some people still send us mail from the old uh, internet address, from the old website. They still go there. I don't, maybe they, maybe they like the user interface better. I don't oh, know. That could be. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and move on to round number one. Well, Ben, we just talked a ton about it, but maybe the uh, the most positive thing to come out of TJ Dillashaw's victory over Hennon Barrow is that we no longer have to look at and puzzle over Hennon Barrow's place on the mythical, totally made up, ultimately meaningless pound for pound rankings. Well, see, I thought you were going to go in a different direction there. I thought you were going to say that we never have to look at his slinky dance, his overly erotic dance. No, uh, which I know bothered you. He remains a dangerous fighter, and I assume will continue to win fights in the future, and therefore bust out the overly sexualized victory dance that that has slinky is how you referred to it in in an article last week yeah well i didn't want to write overly sexualized i don't need that to be my (laughs) seo man (laughs) i want little kids out the googling slinky to find it instead uh it is it's a slinky dance i I, will i was constantly googling chad dundas overly sexualized you'd be surprised it's really high (laughs) on the google rankings uh in any case the viper T.J. Dillashaw, as we learned he was called this yeah. week, uh, maybe because we had never looked at his Wikipedia page before. Or, I don't or know. because, who knows, maybe somebody just was fucking with his Wikipedia page. Yeah, but, I mean, he, he the Viper comes out and beats the Baron, the monster, the killer. Uh, beats pre- the hell out of yeah. him, too. Yes, it was... Uh, like I said, I managed to avoid spoilers in, until I until I started watching it, and it was uh, you know I didn't have the benefit of being surrounded by a million voices yelling at me on on Twitter, but it was like kind of this amazing experience where 
you start watching it and you start thinking, oh, man, DJ Dillashaw's doing pretty well. He's got a good first round going here. And then it slowly starts to dawn on you like, oh, holy shit, he could win this fucking thing. Uh, and I can't remember when he knocked. Did he knock Burrow down in the first round? Yeah. Like, towards the end of the first round? Uh, and, and you know, that's maybe from the point where you went from uh, surprised that TJ Dillashaw was doing as well as he was to then full on holy shit mode, which kind of carried through the the remainder of the fight until the the TKO. Well, I thought you know when you watch the first round, the first two rounds, you wonder can he keep this up? You know, because it seemed like you watch him in the in the pre fight introductions and he can't even stand still in his corner. He's bouncing all over the place, and you could kind of see he had it in his head that this was going to be a fight based on a lot of movement, not standing in front of Hen and Brow for very long. And then he went out there and he was just like manic, pretty much in that first round, all over the place, uh, like you know, like kind of like a dominant cruise, but even a little crazier than that. Uh, and you just think, man, first of all. Where did this come from? He never really had that style too much before. And can he do that for five rounds against a guy like Hen and Brow? And it turned out he could, you know, and it turned out that it wasn't just uh, empty movement either. He clearly had uh, some stuff figured out for how he was going to uh, stay away from Brow's offense and keep him constantly on the defensive. And you could see by third or fourth round, every time he moved, Brow was flinching. He just wasn't sure what was going to come at him or from, from what angle. And he couldn't find T.J. Dillashaw when he went to strike back. And I think that was what made the big difference. You could see him getting frustrated there because he's getting popped. And when he goes to fire back, Dillashaw is just not even there. Yeah, uh, it, it was impressive. And, and uh, you know, T.J. Dillashaw for a long time has been one of those guys that the other guys in his gym like to talk about very you know in in very complimentary terms like maybe not quite to the extent that the aka guys always talked about Cain Velasquez uh because it would be hard to to imagine anyone uh you know putting their training partners over more than the dudes that aka did to, for Cain Velasquez prior to him becoming the champion but uh you know we heard a lot from the the other team alpha male guys especially leading up to this fight about how good TJ Dillashaw is and you know how much growth he's made in the sport during uh the short time that he's been in, involved in it and uh then he goes out in this fight and really looks like a whole new guy and looks like a guy who uh deserves all that praise frankly and deserves the the all of the talk about what a short learning curve he has and and you know how <clears throat> easily and quickly he's able to, to to pick up different techniques. Um, this is another fight where people come away with it, impressed about the the partnership between Team Alpha Male and the the head coach over there, Bang Ludwig. Uh, is he still leaving? Do we know anything about that? Because like I remember a while ago, it seemed like there was a bit of a tiff. Yeah, well, I mean not necessarily a tiff, but like they got their wires crossed about it, the the announcement that he was going to go start his own gym. Uh, because if I was Team Alpha Male right now, I don't know if I'd be stoked about that. Man, yeah, it seems the, like we've all been doing a lot better since he's been here. It seems like he is still leaving to to start this gym in Colorado which, by the way, got a ton of good publicity for a gym that doesn't actually exist. Uh, but T.J. Dillashaw was quick to say that he would be bringing uh, Ludwig back in for his fight camps. He, you know, he, he hasn't forgotten what got him to the dance there, uh, even if it seemed like maybe a, a Uriah faber Dwayne ludwig rift more than anything else. Uh, but, you know, you're right that you look at Dillashaw, and he's only been a pro for a little over four years. And, and if you, when you see the improvement between you know this fight and even just how he was you know a year ago, there's a huge difference there. It makes you wonder how far he could go. At the same time, though, uh, as Danny Downs pointed out this week in the trading shots thing, let's not go and do the 
Machida era thing uh, that we that we sometimes are known to do in this sport. One guy comes out, breakthrough performance, and suddenly we're all sure that uh, his reign will last for a thousand years. Yeah, well, you just uh, anticipated my next my next uh, uh, question and, and plot twist here in the first round because uh, do we now enter a situation where TJ Dillashaw inherits all of the questions that we previously had about Hen and Barrow? Uh, because obviously you wrote about Hen and Barrow and his marketability and, and, and I wrote on Bleacher Report about Hen and Barrow and his marketability and how he, he had been the UFC champion of some variety, either inter interim or uh, regular old champion uh for uh, about two years now and yet had not blossomed into a huge draw and uh know a guy who frankly seemed to be suffering from little guy itis i thought like uh you know he goes out there and is impressive and knocks people out and stops people but like is 135 pounds and to date large numbers of mma fans do not appear to be buying in at least financially into wanting to pay 50 bucks to watch uh 135 pound guys fight does tj dillashaw now inherit all of those questions about marketability and the ability to sell fights and uh what kind of champion will he'll be that like does he have the same issues now that hendon Barrow did or does he sort of get a pass because he kind of just showed up on the scene uh to become champion uh just very uh recently well i guess we'll know soon enough but uh, i don't think that he is going to have quite as uh, uphill a battle as Hen and Brow had in that regard. I mean, for one thing, uh, when we're talking about connecting with North American fans, which is you know the the big thing we were talking about with Brow, uh, he speaks English. He's an American guy. This really you know boy next door blonde wholesome kid looking thing. Um, so he already seems to have somewhat of an advantage in that regard. I think when people see that fighting style, if he continues to employ that what he used against Brow. Uh, I think people are going to want to watch that. And I think you're right that there's some people who are going to be like, hey, I'd rather, you know, two shitty heavyweights trying to knock each other's heads off than like really skilled bantamweights. And that's fine. I mean, that's something that you can't ever really take out of the appeal of fight sports, I guess. But I don't think that uh, Dillashaw is going to have quite the, the same issue that Brow had. He seems to have uh, a little bit more natural charisma uh, and just seems to have a little bit uh, like of an easier time making it so that fans feel like they actually know something about his personality, which is with Hennon Brow, the closest we got, it seemed, was hearing other people who knew him tell us about him. Uh, I guess the next question would be whether or not Dillashaw has the stuff to hang on to the belt long enough for that to become a, a major issue. Uh, we always knew that, that that you know, he, he had some promise and is a guy who comes – off the Ultimate Fighter season 14. Uh, but previous to this, you know, he'd beat Mike Easton and, and he uh, had some other uh, decent wins, but like nothing that would, uh, you know, clue us into the fact that he was going to go out and beat Hennon Burrell. Like, uh, are we buying into him as a longtime champion and as a guy who can do what he did to Hennon Burrell to then everyone else who's going to come up and try to take the strap from him? Well, you beat Hennon Burrell's ass, and it's... it's That's pretty good. You know, yeah, it is, it is a pretty good place. I, the problem, I think, is that right now the bantamweight division just isn't quite deep enough for... Like, the same problem that Burrell had was that with Dominic Cruz out, you know, who do you get your signature win against? Like, who is the big win that, that puts you over and that proves that, you know, you're the, the unquestioned king of that weight class? It's tough to do when the, the you know, there's not a whole lot of uh, talent there to begin with. And then the, the champ, the last, like, known champ is, 
he never lost a belt. He, he was just put on the sidelines with an injury. So, I mean, that is going to be kind of tough, uh, and it might just take some time. And might you know, you look at the featherweight division; it, it was where the bantamweight division is now a couple of years ago, and now it's gotten pretty great. So, I think that you'll see more more talent fill out that division, and then we'll get to see for sure what, when he faces more challenges if he's really that guy. But there's after what he did to Burrell, there's really no reason to think that uh, he's going to be a flash in the pan kind of guy. So you got your ultimate fighter. Champions produced by the reality show at this point. Faux Griff. Right. Rashad Evans. Okay. TJ Dillashaw. All right. Are there more? Did I miss any? Is that it? Well, those two dudes won the ultimate fighter, right? TJ Dillashaw lost the, in the finale to John Dodson. Yeah. But are, there, are those the only champions now? I'm trying to remember if, if there's anybody. I think that's it. I think that is it. TJ Dillashaw, maybe not the guy you'd expect to throw on that list list next. And also, frankly, not the guy you'd expect to finally get Team Alpha Male off the uh, off the schneid, so to speak, in title fights. That's true. And, you know, here, here he does it. I feel I feel good for him. I, think, I feel like it's a feel-good story, man. You watch him go out there and, and, and lay hands on Henry Burrow and, and walk out with the belt. Those dudes seem like they're just super happy for him. And, frankly, a team that seems like it has really good team chemistry and, and where guys are, are supportive of each other more than, uh, more than like jealous of each other or anything like that. Frankly, good to see as far as I'm concerned. Uh, did you see their celebratory team photo afterwards? I did. Not I a did. shirt to be found in the bunch? No shirt nation. Someone should tell them, though, when they try to go carry that party into Chuck E. Cheese, they're, they're not going to be allowed in like that. Everybody's <laughs> going to have to put on a shirt. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to uh, round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, I think that we might have the same topic in mind for, for, for Are You Fucking Kidding Me here, okay. Chad. Uh, I, I'd like to talk about Jamie Varner's foot injury. Oh, okay, yeah, I was going to talk about that too. And I, I was a little surprised we didn't get a listener mail question in about that. So I'm glad that we're going to take the time to talk about it now. Well, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me in that situation goes out to Chael Sonnen who uh, was at the Fox broadcast desk and uh, in doing his comments on the highlights afterwards, uh, kind of the post-fight recap, uh, pretty much said that he thinks Jamie Varner is a pussy who is faking it. What? Yes. I didn't even get a chance to see that since I didn't view this normal. Here's the quote from Chael Sonnen, uh, and this is being played over the highlights as we're seeing uh, Jamie Varner's foot just flop around like he a, can't stand on it. Like he's a, like a collapsing. Fish. Yeah, he's collapsing over and over again. Uh, and if you go back, you can find the the gif of the the actual injury. You can see it occurring in the first minute of the fight, where he goes to try and check a leg kick and kind of gets kicked right on the ankle in an awkward way. And then when he puts his foot down right after that, it just rolls right over. Uh, here's Chilson's comment on it. Quote. We're led to believe that Varner had hurt his ankle in that last exchange. I'm not ready to tell the fans that, guys. That's just not what I saw. Every Jamie Varner fight seems to have a moment like this where a picture is being painted very early on. We don't see Jamie Varner in very many fights that just have a good, clean outcome. Whether he's the most unlucky guy ever or this is the boy that called Wolf, I don't know. But this has seemed to happen for the last six years. Are you fucking kidding me, Shell Sonnen? Are you fucking kidding For me? For one wow. thing, that injury was legit. I don't know, you know, what Shell Sonnen gains by uh, trying to take a shot at a lightweight like that. Uh, and also, just not true that you don't see good, clean endings in Jamie Varner fights or that he's always coming up with weird injuries. There have been uh, a lot of fights that have had good, clean outcomes, both for and against Jamie Varner. 
he was a pretty good comeback story there for a little while. Uh, and I think still a tough guy. I mean, he finished out that round and then has Chelsea and basically calling him a faker. You fucking kidding me? That, wow. See, I was going to say if you needed like a bold faced, italicized reminder that there's something wrong with the guys who compete in this sport, like look no further than Jamie Varner continuing to engage in a fight where his one of his feet does not appear to be connected to the rest of his body. And he's out there giving it his all. And frankly, had some pretty good moments yeah, in this didn't, fight. Didn't do terribly. It seemed like he might be on the verge of winning. Uh, but Ben, my are you fucking kidding me? A pretty obvious one goes out to the ringside physician who you've probably seen the Instagram video and then re- uh, reports on it uh, on, on the Internet, comes in to see if Jamie Varner's OK and steps on his damn foot. Are you fucking kidding me? Two broken bones in Jamie Varner's entire body. And this medical professional <laughs> finds them and steps on them immediately. <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Yeah. Faded, I'm elevated. They barrage in the blue dream. Envision a couple women inside of the blue jeans. Now I'm just playing this marijuana. Want to take me away? Honest, I'm caught in a purple haze. Looking at the competition. Listen, I'll be stopping bitches. King Kong in the building. Ding dong. Leaving your head ringing like Dr. Dre said. And when he tried reinventing his own image. Brother, I can relate. Catered to everybody who wanted well, Chad, after he'd gotten enough of a workout in by throwing Dan Henderson around like a bag of dirty laundry, Daniel Cormier finally put the old guy out of his misery with a rear naked choke, then got up and told John Jones he'd better hurry up and take this fight before he gets so good no mortal can defeat him. I'm paraphrasing there. Pretty close, though. Yeah. Well, okay. In this fight, we see Daniel Cormier do one of the things we thought was very possible as an outcome in this fight. Uh, making Dan Henderson look even older and smaller for the division and feebler than we thought he was. What do you take away from this one? Is this the fight that proves to you that uh, Cormier has got next in a light heavyweight title picture, or was it just something to do in the meantime? Well, I think that the, the, the question marks around Daniel Cormier are beginning to fall away, like with every performance that you see from him. Um, you know, I, I guess... Uh, you know, I knew what his record was, but was a little bit surprised to hear him, you know, right after he won, they said he was 15 and 0. And it just kind of struck me like, wow, you know, that's a that's a lot of wins. It's not like this dude uh, is really uh, inexperienced anymore, which is one of the things that I feel like was one of the few knocks against Daniel Cormier as he's coming up through strike force. And then, you know, comes to the UFC when he was 11 and 0 uh, off that blistering win over Dion staring. Uh, and, and then comes into the UFC. One of the few things that, that we could say about him was that it's, he seemed a little inexperienced, you know, aside from being a little bit small for heavyweight. Now he appears to, to have taken care of that issue by dropping down to light heavyweight. And looks great there. And looks great there. Doesn't seem to be affected by the weight cut. Doesn't seem to have sacrificed any of his, his power or, or cardio. Uh, and now is starting to, uh, you like come into his own as a mixed martial artist at 15 and no, doesn't no longer seems like a guy who's going to get in over his head against somebody who just has more knowledge than he does. Uh, I'm inclined to say he is a scary dude at this point. And, uh, um, 
if, if he was going to fight John Jones, I haven't honestly haven't given any thought to who I would pick. But like, I feel like that's the fight I want to see now, just because I'm not I'm not sorry about the fact that Jones is going to go fight Gustafson again because that was a whale of a fight the first time, and 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 I'll enjoy watching it the second time. But uh, I hope that down the road we get to see John Jones and Daniel Cormier, and frankly, Cormier kind of made it sound like he's going to follow John Jones around and fight him no matter where he goes when he made the crack about how he's the kid at the wrestling tournament who's always in your bracket. <laughs> he did make uh, it sound that way. As you know, I'm into a I'm into a wrestling analogy. You are. You are. I know that about you. And I mean, I think that this was one of those things where like it seemed like right after the fight you could hear people kind of talking about like, "Oh, well, what'd you do? You beat up an old man. What so what?" kind of thing. Uh even Dana White talking about, "Oh, well, you know, I don't know, waiting for that title shot is always a bad move for those guys who do it. He might want to take a fight in the meantime." Time. To me, there's just we keep doing this thing to Daniel Cormier that seems like it's not really within his control. Like he was supposed to fight Rashad Evans, right? That was going to be the fight that really proved whether he was a, a contender or not. Rashad pulls out of that fight, he gets Patrick Cummins, and then he knocks him out, and everybody says, Well, that doesn't prove anything, and okay, fine. So then we have him fight Dan Henderson. He beats up Dan Henderson. Well, Dan Henderson's old. I mean, what do you want him to do? He's already so far up the rankings that the only guys ahead of him at this point really are Gustafson and Jones, and you know, those two guys have to have to finish some business. If he fights anybody below that, you can always do the thing, oh well, what does it prove for him to beat so and so? You know, I, I just think that it seems like if you want him to fight some more, you're just trying to get him to prove something which we already feel like I think that we've kind of proved at this point. I mean, I don't think there's anybody out there who would say that Daniel Cormier uh, would not be a competitive matchup for either Jones or Gustafson. It just seems like they want some kind of justification on paper uh, that where it makes it look like there's a clear through line. I mean, I think a lot of the stuff we get excited about with Cormier is ability and potential. Uh, and I don't, I mean, you look at his record and the guy has wins over like Josh Barnett, Frank Mir, Roy Nelson, now Dan Henderson, uh, Bigfoot Silva, who he knocked out. I mean, I don't know how much more you really need him to do. The UFC has certainly made, uh, far less justifiable title fights. I don't see any need for him to fight anybody else in the meantime, unless he absolutely wants to, or unless, you know, somebody in, gets hurt in, jo- in the Jones Gustafson fight and it's going to be a while. Yeah, I don't see anyone. I mean, I guess I wouldn't be that mad about Rashad Evans still, uh, because I feel like he's a good, solid, light heavyweight former champion that it would mean something if Daniel Cormier, you know, came out and, and rolled over him the same way that he rolled over, uh, Dan Henderson. But you're right about light heavyweight. Like, who else is he going to fight? You don't, you don't want to see him fight like Anthony Johnson or Shogun Hua or Phil Davis or anybody like that. And because, and frankly, I, I don't want to miss out on the, on the John Jones Daniel Cormier fight, which I feel like whatever year it happens, either at the end of this year or, or maybe Super Bowl weekend 2015 is probably my most anticipated fight of the year. So you're just looking right past Lusty Gusty. That's what you're doing. I'm, I mean, I don't want it to. Well, fuck it. Yeah, I hope John Jones beats him <laughs> because I want to see John Jones, Daniel Cormier. Like, and I feel like I'm probably not alone in that. I feel like that's the fight, man. That's the fight everyone wants to see. And and John Jones, Alexander Gustafson is is we hope, uh, you know, going to be great again and probably going to do a good number on pay-per-view now that so few people tuned in for the first one. Uh, maybe they'll put it over in Europe or whatever. Uh, and that's if they can make it. They still haven't – they have to sign John Jones to a new deal. They they announce when they want to have it. Now they have to sign John Jones to a new deal, which, by the way, if that's the way you want to go about it, I hope he and his management hold you over a barrel there and really get all they can out yeah, of Yeah, well, I doubt he's on the phone with Bjorn Rebney right now, so I think they're probably <laughs> on pretty, pretty safe ground there. Uh, but no, like – 
Daniel, Daniel Cormier, John Jones is the fight that I want to see. I think it's the fight that most people interested in the light heavyweight division want to see. And I think Daniel Cormier knows that. And I think that's why you see him taking on this little edge when he talks about John Jones, which is uh, not that normal for him. Because I think, you know, if you watch this sport and, and pay attention to it, I think we all know Daniel Cormier, uh, while tough as shit and, and has been through, uh, some, some tragedy and, and some, uh, you know, uh, adversity in his life, like comes off like a really good dude. He's and, just a big fucking teddy bear. And so it's super nice. It's a little bit unnerving to see him kind of try to, uh, do a little trash talk and have that, that little edge. I wouldn't want to see him go overboard with it, but I feel like the, the post fight comment comments uh struck as close to a, a, the right note as you can in that kind of situation well, and i feel like it's uh it's genuine from him because it, the kind of uh trash talk that you will get from that dude is not like of a a personal level but like you know he is a wrestler so they're just like a certain type of super competitive uh guy who you know it's an individual sport where they all want to be the absolute number one the last guy left standing so he has that that sort of competitive edge to him and especially if you get him right after the bout it seems like you get a little bit more of that uh than you know if you get him three weeks out from a fight and he's just uh you know the really nice likable guy but it does seem like that's his his thing with is poking john jones in the chest over and over again and saying how you know i'm coming for you keep keep looking over your shoulder and i'm just getting better all the time which honestly kind of seems to be true yeah that's uh, i don't think you can i don't think you can fault the guy especially it seems like he just he's laying the groundwork now uh to try to have a big feud with john jones when the time comes which i think is smart of him and uh uh you know, not that I, I feel like Daniel Cormier, Alexander Gustafson would be awesome. And I, I would like to see that as well, but it just doesn't have as many of the, uh, the dynamics to it as John Jones, Daniel Cormier would. And I feel like that's, that's the, that's the fight I want to see. Uh, you know what I like? What do you like? Foot sweep. Yeah. Give me an awesome foot sweep, which is weird because when you think about MMA, you're never like, oh man, dudes pull out these dope foot sweeps. You're going to love it. But like, that foot sweep that Daniel Cormier had on, on Dan Henderson in this fight where made Dan Henderson look like he slipped on a banana peel, awesome. Yeah. Like, I'll probably well, remember a, that forever. The same way I remember the uh, Randy Couture foot sweep on Rico Rodriguez where he damn near turned him upside down. It's, Give me a foot sweep. It's That's great all I'm saying. Because he gets the, that single leg and uses it to just, uh, you know, basically pro wrestling style body slam Dan Henderson who then scrambles up and is trying to run away trying like has his back to Cormier trying to to run away from danger to go get help uh, and Cormier grabs him by the shoulder and sweeps one foot into the other, you know, schoolyard bully style like you do to the kid who's walking in front of you in the lunch line uh, and then just pulls him right back down and yeah that that is some pretty stuff right there and something that uh, you can tell that, okay, here is a guy who uh, has the, the creativity and the physical skills to do the kind of stuff that we just don't see all that often. Yeah, we're going to get help. Like, who do you think he's going to get? Like, there's, no one can help you as an adult. <laughs> no one can help you once you're already in there, and it's round three. Mr. Van Rasmussen. <laughs> Daniel body slammed me. 
yeah, so Daniel Cormier moves to 15-0, and beats Dan Henderson, uh, a little bit like we all thought he would. But at the same time, I feel like goes out, shows off the takedowns, shows off the ground and pound, uh, shows off the dope foot sweep. Uh, you know, has has the 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 pedigree and the skill set that that reminds you a little bit of Randy Couture and uh, you know of his training partner Kane Velasquez, frankly, in terms of putting people down and then punching them in the head super hard. Uh, if there's a, a, a criticism, it, it may be that he's not the most exciting fighter in the world, but at the same time, hard to argue with the slams and the foot sweep and the ground and pound. I thought. Yeah, I don't. You know, I heard people complaining about that fight and. I don't know. I, I was not the only thing for me that was difficult to watch about it was that at times it started to seem like Dan Henderson was just sort of helpless uh, and was way overmatched there. And so, you know, and especially a guy like that who he's a legend of the sport and kind of an older guy. At a certain point, you get tired of watching him get beat up like that. You wish it would just go ahead and end, which it eventually did. Uh, but I don't know. I think that Cormier has that thing where, like you said with Randy Couture, who was not the most exciting fighter to watch, but people seem to overlook that or forget that just because they liked him so much and he had such a good personality. I think it's the, kind of the same thing for Daniel Cormier, that even if he goes in there and has to do a, a grinding style against some guys, people aren't going to mind that much eventually just because they, they like him. They like watching DC fight. Right. And Randy Couture also existed in the glory days back before we had to have a two hour long conversation on Twitter about how exciting everyone is. So he had that going for him. Uh, Well, that's going to do it for round number two. Uh, We'll be right back with round number three. Don't you love the way the people think they really know who you are? Like assuming you even know the truth, shine of a star. Nah, you could never know. It makes you dizzy as a merry-go-round in the building. I am a stereo. Killer of all thoughts. Y'all want to contest the villain who's willing to separate mind from the flesh. Best thought of as a vision. Never be wary cause he's fueled by the ism So he's out in mental prison Drinking Gatorade, maybe you stop sweating my balls Let me be me from my friends to my boss To everything in between Don't ever try to guess a minute of what it's even like to be Ben, what in tarnation is going on this weekend? The UFC is going to put on two fight cards on the same day One of them, the... Tough Brazil 3 finale, as I wrote once on Bleacher Report, a phrase that every time I have to write it or utter it makes me wonder how we got here, uh, which is going to feature Fabio Maldonado versus Stipe Miocic's main event from uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, is one of them. And then you got your other one, which is going to be the one that's on Fight Pass uh, at 3 p.m. Eastern time, so 1 p.m. in the 1 true time zone, from the O2 Arena in Berlin, uh, Mark Munoz versus Gegard Mousasi is your main event there. And then in your co-main, or as I like to call it, the people's main, uh, Frankie Cars against Clarence Byron Dalloway. Which is so fitting that that should be the co-main event since that's the fight that we called for. That's right. The Duke against uh, Frankie Cars. Uh, what? I mean, let's just open this up. What is What message is being sent here by the UFC having two events in one day? Uh, they're going to do this three or four times this year where they have two events on the same day. What uh, What's really going on here? Well, the, you know, the goal is to get to a point where there is never not a UFC fight on, a live UFC fight happening somewhere in the world. Which is um, going to make recording the podcast interesting in future years when we'll just have to have the, the Wi-Fi the radio on listening yeah. to the call of whatever you we'll have to get one of those little like on. old stock tickers basically to keep us constantly informed of what new developments are going on in the sport because well, it will never stop sir nigel reading play-by-play off a of ticker tape yeah 
Uh, Down but, goes Bogatanov. You know, and you would think that that it might be uh, troublesome for fans trying to keep up with the sport. Fortunately, uh, fighting's in our DNA, and we get it, and we like it. So I guess that's problem solved. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you know, like we joke, but this this seems like kind of an audacious move to me, and one that that uh, I think continues to underline the kind of like uh regionalized uh direction that we're moving in yes with the with the ufc where uh i mean if you do two fight cards in one day one of them in germany and the other one in brazil you it seems to me like you're sending the very clear message that you don't care if your fans watch both of them or either of them and that or none of them or none of them and and that you know the one you're doing in germany is very much designed to appeal to fans in Europe, you would think. And then the one in Brazil is designed to appeal to people who had sat through tough Brazil three. Uh, so both of them will be watching that over on Fox sports one. It just seems like, uh, uh, I don't know, man. It just seems like a very strange direction to me for the world's largest MMA promotion. Yeah, and it does seem like the thing where clearly these are for the local populations and, hey, those of you in North America, whatever – uh, you know, watch it if you want. If not, don't bother telling us. About Which is it. weird because there's still this like uh, very palpable peer pressure and and sense that we are indeed supposed to watch and know what's happening at both of these fight cards. But you are telling people when you're putting fight cards on on the same day on different continents. Uh, you know, something you would never do when you had one big fight card. Like you would never put one. You know from Sweden on the same day that you have like UFC 173 from Las Vegas like you wouldn't do that so you're saying like okay we realize that these are not as good that's the only reason that they can be you know being held more or less simultaneously in completely opposite parts of the world uh, so like you are sending us and reinforcing these messages that we've come to to uh, pick up on about the quality of the cards. You're telling us that these are not quite as good as the usual stuff. And hey, if you're not, if you got nothing better to do at one o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, this will be there. Which, by the way, I know the other one, the the tough Brazil one had it had the Junior dos Santos uh, Stipe fight, right? And it, it lost it, um, and then kind of had to scramble and get Fabio Maldonado to say, I guess I'm big enough and I'm Brazilian, I can take that fight. But that's the one on that's on TV. I look at this other one from Berlin, and that one looks like the better fight card to me now. Yeah, it does. The one that's going to be on Fight Pass seems like it's it's going to be the better card. And you know, frankly, even if you still had uh, Stipe Miocic against uh, JDS as the main event over here, you still have a lot of um, unknowns, I guess you would say, rounding out the rest of the card. Uh, Damian Mai is fighting somebody named Alexander Yak Yakovlev. Nailed it. Uh, and then, of course, your your introductory main event, the first fight on the main card, which is on the same TV channel as the preliminary card. So it's really just the next fight after Rodrigo Dam and, and Rashid Megamedov. The prelim main event. Fight, the prelim main event. Honey Jason fights Robert Peralta. In the, so, the night's first main event. That's going to hook the everyone, opening main event. Hook everyone in before we get to the tough three Brazil middleweight and heavyweight finals. So that says that right here. So you know what weight classes they had on this season of the show uh, that has a dudes whose names I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's pretty weird to me all the way around, you know, not, not the least of which I guess it's maybe a, a time slot deal since you're having this 
uh, Mark Munoz, Gegard Mousasi fight over in Berlin. It, it's going to go on in, in the late afternoon in the United States, whereas uh, this Brazilian one is going to start pretty much yeah. normal time. You, you pretty much just go south. You don't really have to worry about the time zone screwing with you that much. Yeah, and I could say, and back when it you know had a better main event than that one, I, I guess that fight alone. Uh, would be would make the whole thing more TV worthy. Again, I always wonder with some of those guys, like guys who are established fighters, like Mark Munoz, Gegard Mousasi, uh, you know, even Frankie Cars and CB Dalloway, where the UFC tells you, "All right, we got your next fight booked. You're going to Berlin. It's going to be on the internet in the middle of the damn afternoon on the same day where we have another fight card that's going to be on TV." Uh, anyhow, thanks. We really appreciate you coming out. Uh, you know, like, how are you not supposed to feel like you're getting a shitty end of the deal there as a fighter? Uh, no, I'm sure they're they're super mad. I'm sure I, I'm actually certain that they are 100 percent totally mad about it, but too scared to say anything. <laughs> uh, and it's a shitty deal all the way around, because if you're Mark Munoz, you're like, I got to I got to believe that you're not having a great time out there signing sponsors for your fight shorts for your. Uh, main event fight that's going to be on the internet at one o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, on maybe get Deutsche time. Bank or something to sign on there. Uh, yeah, no, I guess you got to look overseas. I mean, I yeah. guess you got to get regionalized in your uh, Dare Dynamic Fastener. <laughs> das Fastener. Yeah, I have a sponsorship with Das Fastener gehaben or something. I don't yeah, know. there you go. Pretty close. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about uh, Fabio Maldonado versus Steve Miocic, which I guess you would just say is a weird, wacky Cirque du Soleil type matchup. Um, I guess you got to give it up to Fabio Maldonado for, uh, for just uh, saying fuck it. So for saying fuck it and going up to fight at heavyweight where he used to fight at regional cards in Brazil before the UFC in good sense prevailed and he moved down to light heavyweight. Uh, now he's going to uh, fight fast rising uh, potential number one contender, Stipe Miocic, since, you know, when you had Junior Dos Santos in this fight, it seemed like the winner of this one would be in a pretty good spot to fight the winner of uh, Velasquez versus Verdum. Uh, but uh, uh, I saw the quote that originally came out. I don't have it in front of me, but it was something like Fabio Maldonado told MMA Fighting, I can't promise I'm going to win. The only thing I can promise is blood and violence because I'm going to go out there and, and, and do it to it, which... Is obviously a paraphrase, paraphrasation, paraphrasing. And, and that That's does me paraphrasing. seem like the promise that he offers you in this fight, right? Is that, hey, I don't really have any business in this fight, so therefore I kind of have nothing to lose except for a bunch of blood and brain cells. Uh, and I'm known as the guy who can take one hell of a beating and still keep standing there, even if it's probably not a good idea for me to do so. Uh, and so that's what he's going to come in here and do. And I don't, you know, it's one of those things where what does Stipe Miocic really gain out of beating up uh, Fabio Maldonado? Well, he gets paid and it's better than not beating him up. It's better than losing. You know, that's kind of about it. It's, it is a Cirque du Soleil weird, wacky fight in that sense. Uh, but, uh, hey man, we can't have a Saturday where there's only one fight card. We got to find somebody to get in there and, and fill out the other main event. Uh, if Stipe Miocic beats Fabio Maldonado, which I think we all expect him to do, uh, does that earn him anything? Does he become out of that smelling any better than he did previously? Uh, 
I mean, if Fabio Maldonado wins, obviously then you've made a deal with the devil to probably stay at heavyweight for the remainder of, of your run <laughs> since that will forge you as a, as an automatic contender in a fairly shallow division, but one where you're going to be fighting a lot of huge dudes who are going to try to punch your face further into your head. Uh, but to Steve Miocic, like it seems like he inherits, inherits kind of a no-win situation here. I mean, an, uh, uh, an easy win situation, but at the same time, kind of a thing where he's not going to gain too much. Yeah, but then, you know, you might as well. It's not like there's a, a huge, like, time uh, issue here where you're trying, to, you you needed to get this fight to be the one that propels you into the title fight. Velasquez and Verdum are going to do the ultimate fighter, and then they're going to fight, and because they're heavyweights, somebody will probably, you know, tear a groin or some goddamn thing and break a hand, and then we'll have to wait for you know the champion to get healthy again, whoever comes out of that one. So yeah, he's probably going to have to fight one more after this. He might have had to do that anyway, though, or might have wanted to do that just to keep getting paid. So I guess it's not a, a problem for him unless he loses, and then it's disastrous. But if you go out there, you beat up Fabio Maldonado, who probably makes you punch him in the head way more than you, know, you are physically comfortable with, uh, and then maybe you get a real heavyweight fight after that while you're waiting for your chance at the title shot. It, it probably won't work out too badly for Steve Bay. Wow, I forgot until you just said it that they're, that Verdum and Velasquez are going to do that tough Latino America no, 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 don't thing. forget that. Oh, God. There's no problem. There's just the ex- we're striking the exact right amount of content at this point. It's just, there's, there's no limit to the amount of content we can produce and still keep it all at the same level. All right, let's do just saying stuff and then uh, we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, I don't know if you even saw last week's Ultimate Fighter, which was largely hyped as having a, a strange and terrible ending no. uh, to uh, a, a tournament fight between two guys whose names I can now not remember. Uh, I tuned in to watch it, suckered in by the hype, as I so often am. Uh, was shocked to find out that I'm totally Team Penn, considering that BJ brought Mark Coleman in as a as his wrestling coach. That'll do it for you. And uh, had Matt Hughes come in on a visitation uh, during this, this episode that I watched. But uh, the fight itself did have a strange ending where uh, they went to sudden victory, the third round. Nice. Uh, uh, one of the fighters lost a point. Uh, thereby making it sort of mathematically impossible for him to win. And then he won by decision. Uh, Dana White freaked the fuck out, as I think uh, he was justified in doing. Uh, but then also launched into a weird tirade against Steve Mazzagatti uh, for taking a point away from this guy whose name, I believe, was Roger Zapata in the third round. Uh, so th- and, and you know what? I'm just saying this week, I think we've reached a point in this sport where we're just going to blame Steve Mazzagatti all the time, even though I feel like he was in the right on this one. Because the guy was throwing some of those weird uh, downward Travis Brown style elbows uh, from multiple different angles. I don't know anyone other than Ben Folks who thinks he can tell the difference between the legal and the illegal in that situation. Steve Mazzagatti warned the guy twice in the first round. He continued to throw him and then uh, finally ended up taking a point away in the third round. I'm just saying, man, is it time we cut the Maz a break? Well, you know... I'm going to pull a Dana White here and say, even though I have not seen that fight and have no intention of going back to look it up and see what happened, uh, that I think Steve Mazzagatti was fucking horrible and totally screwed that fight up. So you learned something. <laughs> we all learned a valuable lesson. No idea week. what I'm talking about. Literally no idea. Well, Jad, my just saying stuff, we've mentioned Dana White and Vitor Belfort prior to this, uh, but 
This week, uh, in his media scrum after the pre-fight press conference in Las Vegas, Dana White was talking about uh, Vitor Belfort's licensing situation in Nevada and kind of trying to imply that he felt like Vitor Belfort got screwed by Nevada when he came there and was subjected to a surprise drug test, the results of which, by the way, are completely irrelevant, uh, as Vitor's Belfort, Vitor Belfort's lawyer will uh, remind you. Here's Dana White's quote from it. Let's say he came into Nevada and his testosterone levels were off the charts. He wasn't fighting. He came in here to talk about getting licensed. And the thing was, welcome to Nevada. You want to be licensed here, you have to stop taking TRT. As a guy who's not fighting, you can go around and do whatever the hell you want with TRT. No, you can't. I'm just saying that's exactly the problem. That was exactly the point many of us were trying to make for years about TRT was what these guys were doing with it before they were actually, you know, at the fight expecting to be tested. That's the whole issue. I'm just saying the inability to understand that aspect of it proves that we should have gotten rid of that thing a long goddamn time ago. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at those dueling UFC events uh, next week. Uh, until now, though, we are done. You could just tell, like, I was kind of just, yeah. just you defeated look, you by look the fatigued. entire idea of it. Yeah. It's <laughs> like trying to figure out in my mind how to even say it. I could see you. You were thinking about, well, hey, maybe I won't have to do it if I leave town and change my name. <laughs> like, how are we even going to talk about that? How are we even going to organize the show? <laughs> oh, God. All right. Well, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. How about this? You watch one, and I'll watch one. Call the one that's on television. God damn it. You can, you can watch the one that's on the internet uh, on demand, so maybe we can, we can watch them at the same time. And then about that, the show could be.